When we made this move, um, I was convinced about something about you. <clears throat> um, and when I say that, I mean uh, our church family at Wallen at the time. And I shouldn't just say I. Our elders were convinced that the people of this church had a heart for their neighbor that beat strongly enough to say they wanted to take whatever skills and abilities and passions that were in them and apply them to bringing the gospel to their neighbors. What John just presented is a real interesting thing, right? So the opportunity to take people who have medical skills, heart for their neighbor to help them in a variety of ways, and all of a sudden you apply that to your context and you change the world. And that's why we moved down here. It's an ever ongoing thing, you guys. I wished it was done. Uh, I don't know that it will ever be done, which is actually one of the attractive pieces of being here. We will never run out of opportunities. Um, I, I have come to loathe the word potential. <clears throat> potential means something that could be that isn't. And every day I walk around this campus and I see potential. And it irritates me. So um, I am asking and uh, wondering out loud with you about when God is going to take some of that potential and turn it into reality. And it's going to be glorious when it happens. And it's going to change our city. We just have to have the courage and the wherewithal to do it, right? Uh, Wednesday night, I missed Aaron, your announcement. So uh, we had an open house. We had hundreds of people from the neighborhood here Wednesday night. It was a glorious evening. And uh, look forward to their kids being in VBS. And, and there are a lot of times, you guys, we ask them to come, our neighbors to come to our campus, and that's a good thing. But we need to go out and engage our world too, not just ask them to come to ours. And so we're excited about all those opportunities. And I have to cover Genesis through Ruth, so I need to stop talking about that because I have become a punchline and a, a punching bag this week for how much I covered last week in my endeavor to govern Genesis. Luke came back from vacation, he goes, how far did you get? I go, I made it to Genesis 11. He goes, what are you doing? You're supposed to get to Ruth. I go, I'll, I'll, I'll get there this week. And he goes, oh, yeah. He rolls his eyes just like all of you. I've only been asked a half a day. So is there a part three to this thing coming? It's, no, I'm doing it all today. All right, you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. I have to talk fast. I got a lot of ground to cover. Last Sunday, I presented the idea that God as creator puts his glory on display through his creation. Um, it is a delight to him, and he delights in what he has made. And therefore, when we minimize uh, creation, we minimize his glory. When we attack in any way, shape, or form the brilliance of what he did in creation, we're doing more than questioning science. We are questioning the glory of God. 
Listen to Psalm 19, verses 1 to 4. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? about the glory of God in the amazing thing we call creation. To the ends of the earth, God's voice is heard through what he has made. And uh, Paul said in Romans 1 that all of us can see it if we'll pay attention. And when we see it, we understand that there is a creator. And when you understand there is a creator, you start asking questions. What does this creator expect of me? Uh, What is my purpose? What are the behaviors of right and wrong? Does my creator love me? We could go on and on and on. All these things are stirred within us. As I noted last Sunday, the beauty of that glory in creation in the book of Genesis was under assault at least three different times in the first 11 chapters. The first assault was from the first man and woman, Adam, Eve, in the garden where they were told not to do one thing, don't eat from that one tree. They, of course, ran straight to the tree, I think, and, and said, I like that tree, I'm having lunch. And so they immediately uh, disobeyed God under the guidance of a slimy little serpent fellow there, and uh, they introduced evil into the equation in Genesis 3. By Genesis chapter 6, the Bible says in verse 5 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts were only evil continually. It is a horrifying verse. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God was so saddened by what he had created in man that he decides he's going to wipe him out, and he floods the earth, and he saves a guy named Noah and his family. The second onslaught. The third comes in Genesis chapter 11, where in verse 4, it says, uh, the people got together and says, let us build a city, uh, a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. You'll notice the motive of man's heart was to glorify himself. In each instance, you guys, Genesis 3, Genesis 6, Genesis 11, it is the glory of God that is put on trial. And that glory is said to be lacking. Therefore, I'm going to create my own glory. I'm going to be independent. I'm going to replace my acknowledgement and my dependence on my creator. And I'm going to behave as if I'm the creator. I know he told me not to touch the tree or or not to eat from the tree. I'm having lunch. I know I was told how to behave. I think about nothing but evil things, Genesis 6. I know that I'm supposed to bring glory and honor to my creator, but instead I'm going to build a tower to me. Each and every time God sees and is grieved, he responds by holding the people accountable. He held Adam and Eve accountable and cursed things. He flooded the grounds. And in Genesis chapter 11, if you want to turn there on page 8, Uh, of the uh, chair Bible. In verses 6 through 9, he gives his 
um, conditions, his accountability to those who built these t- this tower. And he says in verse 6, Behold, they, uh, the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. By that, I believe he means they're going to continue to exercise independence and evil at a greater and higher level. There's no boundaries on them. Nothing they propose to do will now be impossible. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So verse 8, the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. They left off building their city and therefore it's called Babel because there the Lord confused the language on the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Those are the consequences for the third assault on the glory of God in the book of Genesis. It is an interesting punishment, isn't it? You understand what happens in Genesis chapter 11 is what you experience every day. That is this. There are multiple ethnicities on this earth because of Genesis chapter 11. What happens is languages are confused and uh, cultures are born. Behaviors are formed in groups. And the groups no longer trust and believe in each other. In fact, they look at each other and say, I don't believe in you at all. The birth of racism is in Genesis chapter 11. The the birth of ethnocentric living, which says this, my people are better than your people, is born in Genesis chapter 11. This was to create confusion on the earth so that in their confusion, man would do what? Lord, help me. Because without the confusion and everybody speaking the same language, man has shown exactly what he will do. And he will say this, I don't need you, God. I'll do it myself. So the confusion of the languages, the beginning of ethnic differences in Genesis chapter 11 serve a purpose of confusion within the framework of humanity causing human beings to second-guess themselves. They then start asking questions. Those questions point them to their creator. That was the idea. Before I leave this idea, can I, I can tell you that it is, this is one of the foundational reasons for why I have become so convinced there's no room for racism in the body of Christ. There is no room in the hearts of God's people to look on other ethnicities as inferior or unwanted because of what? The melanin in their skin? Because of their cultural differences? And yet, you guys, if you parachute on any continent in this world, you will find racial division. You will find it in its grossest forms. 
where one group says, you don't deserve to exist. I'm going to extinguish you. And we have seen people rise up in the name of ethnocentric behavior to say, no one's as good as we are. Have you heard of World War II? And humanity has repeatedly bowed to their own racial behaviors as being superior to everyone else. I mean, we all know that the Romanians are at the top of the food chain. Everybody knows that. Especially the people in Romania who really can't even stand the people in Transylvania who are also Romanians. Um, I learned this lesson over again when we hired a Burmese pastor and put him on our staff and said, go minister to refugees in our city. And Kam Mung was on our staff for a couple of years' time. And as he went out into the community of Fort Wayne, he was categorically rejected by the Burmese population. You want to know why? He was from the wrong tribe in Burma. We have racial issues. They came out of judgment for arrogance. They are reconciled in Christ at the cross. And he has taken the ethnic diversity and said, I've made you a kingdom of priests. I have made you one. And therefore, in God's church, there is no room for prejudice and racism. And y'all ought to be doing the wave right now. But some of you are mad at me. Nothing I've ever spoken on has ever caused me more grief than when I speak about race in the body of Christ. People don't like it. They think that's my problem. Or they tell me how woke I am. And I usually say, I'm actually quite tired, but thank you. <clears throat> and I'm not trying to march to the beat of some drum from a cultural perspective. I open the scriptures and I see what it says. And I think God is most glorified as creator when we behave as if it was prior to the Tower of Babel. And we, when we restore that behavior in our assembly, he is praised. Y'all should say that louder. Th this whole room ought to be doing this right now. That, that guy's on right now. Okay, I got to keep going. I'll never make it to Ruth at this pace, will I? I'm still in the introduction. Now, the answer to the problem of the dispersion of the peoples was a chosen nation. I have to tell you, I don't know why that was the answer, but it was the answer. So the chapter 11, everybody's dispersed. Chapter 12, verse 1, the glory of God is going to be restored through the pursuit of a creator by the example of a nation. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, <clears throat> Go from this country and your kindred, your father's house, to a land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. 
I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and those who dishonor you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through this man, Abram and his family was to be birthed a nation. That nation was to be put on display to all the nations that are now confused out of Genesis chapter 11. Here's your immediate takeaway. The Creator loves His creation. Humanity is the crown of His creation. He is passionately loving you. That has never escaped him. And so as he dispersed the people, he then devises a plan to bring those people back to him through the display of a nation led by this guy, Abram. The book of Genesis then is the unpacking of this promise between God and Abram. Go to chapter 17 in Genesis in verse 5. And in Genesis 17, God changes Abram's name. And he says, um, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Your old name won't cut it because your job uh, is not described well by it. So now you're a father of many nations. This is what you're going to do, Abraham. This is promised, this promise is repeated again in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 to 18, after Abraham sacrificed his only son, Isaac, and they come to him and they said, hey, uh, the angel of the Lord says uh, to Abraham a second time, by myself I've sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this and have not withheld your only son, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offsprings as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gates of the enemies. And in your offspring shall all nations of the earth be blessed. The premise I'm sharing with you today is this that God has a passion for all the peoples of this earth. And it has been His desired goal to rescue them from themselves. And He did that by establishing the nation of Israel. I don't have time to read all the passages. Chapter 26, verses 1 to 4. This same promise given to Abraham's son Isaac. Chapter 35, verses 9 to 11, this same promise given to Isaac's son Jacob. Chapter 48, verses 17 to 19, this same promise given to Joseph's son Ephraim. From Genesis 12 to the end of Genesis is the thread of this promise that the nations will be blessed by the establishment of a new nation. So that when a nation say, I wonder what God's like, they could look to Israel and say, there he is. So that's the book of Genesis. It is the unfolding of God's passion for his own creation, specifically the rescuing of humanity from their foolishness of their heart. He's going to do that through the establishment of a nation.
Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, there's a piece of prophecy that happens here that will outline what's coming uh, next. In verse, 13, uh, verse 12, the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. He's not even named Abraham yet. And behold, a dreadful darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. That is the description of the Egyptian slavery of Israel in the book of Exodus. That very thing is exactly what happened in Israel. And so as you move from the nation being born, the beginning of the nation, is the continuing of that nation. And that is the book of Exodus. And so in the book of Exodus, God has preserved his people in Egypt from famine. But in so being, as they've grown, they become offensive to their, their hosts and they enslave them for 400 years. In chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, they are now removed from that slavery. God has brought them out. And if you remember the story, there were all kinds of plagues that happened and the Pharaoh would not let the people go. And Moses said, let the people go. And he says, no, I'm not gonna let you go. And then he said, yeah, I'll let you go. And then he lied and came back after him. Well, now they're, they're gone, and he's getting ready to chase them down. But between them and God, in chapter 19, in verse 4, uh, God says to the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God singles out the Israeli people, and through Moses leads them out of Egyptian slavery, and God calls them his own, his treasured possession, a holy nation. And you'll notice, among the peoples, for verse 5 says, all the earth is mine. You see, God had a holistic approach to this thing from day one. He always was rescuing the nations. They were always the priority of his mercy. And Israel was his appointed uh, uh, foil to bring them back to him. From there, chapter 20, God gives a top 10 list of what's going to make you a unique nation. That would be the Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments would set the Jewish people apart from all of their neighbors. In verses 20, or chapters 21, 22, and 23, it gets expounded upon what that looks like. In other words, God has now given them a written document that defines them as a people. What does that sound like to you? What do we have in the good old U.S. of A? We have a constitution, Josh, thank you. We have a constitution that defines us as a country. Here's who we are. This is how we work. This is how we behave. The book of Exodus puts before the people of Israel a constitution of behavior. 
You have the Ten Commandments, then it is unfolded in a little greater detail, and it will be blown up in the book of Leviticus. We'll talk about that in a moment. So God calls these people out. He's leading them away from their slavery years in Egypt. And in chapter 24, verse 3, Moses comes and tells all the words of the Lord and all the rules to the people. And the people answer with one voice and said, All the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right. Let's pinky swear on that, right? And so the nation of Israel, being removed from slavery in Egypt, is embracing their position as being the example for the living God of what a nation ought to be of God's chosen people. We will do everything you said, they said. Okay, let's go do that. The book of Exodus is followed by a book called Leviticus. Leviticus is filled with rules and standards of behavior. The book of Leviticus tells the people that there is a way to live that honors their creator, and it's called holiness. You are to be different as my people don't be like anybody. And so the book of Leviticus gives offerings for forgiveness when you fail to do it. But holiness was to be a way of life. What you eat was to be different. You're supposed to be kosher. What you wear was to be different. How you handle your medical issues. There's all kinds of stuff in there about scabs and boils and all kinds of fun stuff. Good stuff. There's stuff in there about how you pursue intimacy. What chapter is that? I need to read that one. I, 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 right? So God basically, in the book of Leviticus, says, I want to talk to you about your worship. I want to talk to you about what happens in your living room. I want to talk to you about what happens in your bathroom. I'm going to give you instructions about how to behave in your bedroom. If you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God, these are the rules of engagement. That's the book of Leviticus. And it is summarized six different times with this statement. Be holy for I am holy. I think it's found seven times in the entire Bible, six of those in the book of Leviticus. Interesting. So that constitution now has defined a nation and has told them how to live. So here's Israel. They have the call of God, or the identity of God, and they have the direction of God. Here's what we don't know about them yet. Do they have the courage of God? Because I want you to think about what God just did to this people. He plucks them out of all the humanity on the earth, out of all those cultures, out of all those behaviors, out of all those languages, and says, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. Good. I like that. Thank you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to send, you know, pestilence against your enemies. This is going to be a good thing. Okay. This is really great. Well, here's how you're supposed to live. Okay. Tell us how to live, Lord. And he gives the instructions on how to live. And then guess what he's going to do with them? He's going to say, okay, go, go do it. Go live. Because 
even though they have a calling from their king, and even though they have a constitution for their behavior, they lack something to be a nation, don't they? They don't have land. They're a nomadic group of gypsies at this point. Tough to be a nation of example for the world to see the greatness of the Creator if He can't even give you a land for you to call your own, and He does. And so He steps into Israel and says, I have prepared for you a land, and I want you to go take it. That is the book of Numbers. And unfortunately, I take you to Numbers 13 and 14, this is where Israel fails. They don't fail because their God is weak. They don't fail because God's instructions are not adequate. They fail because they are afraid. And do you know what they're afraid of? All the other people groups around them. There are so many parallels to the local church today. I'm going to just pause a minute, aren't there? As God has called us out, told us how to live, given instructions to us on how to behave, and we compromise because we're scared. We don't speak up because we're afraid. Well, uh, Numbers chapter 13, they send 12 spies in. Ten of them say, well, all 12 say, it's good. Good job, God, on the land thing. It's a beaut. The grapes are big. Took two guys to carry a thing full of grapes. The people are big, though, too. And so in the, in the end of verse 13, uh, it, it, verse 33, it says, And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. You know, this isn't the uh, 5, 10, and under uh, basketball league. You've got to play with the big boys here, and the big boys are pretty, they're scary. They're going to kill us. And so the people hear this, in chapter 14, verse 1, all the congregation raises a loud cry. They wept. All the people of Israel, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why, verse 3, is the Lord bringing us this land to fall by the sword? Our wives, our little ones will become prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you hear what these people are saying? These are the people who said, we'll do everything he says. And now they're saying, you know, it, it's like the NFL referee went under the little hood thing and pulled the video screen up. Upon further review, we believe that it'd be better to be slaves to the Egyptians than to be God-honoring free people in a difficult place. It'd be better to fit in to our former world than it would be to stand up in our new world. Again, the parallels to us as Christians is, is amazing, is it not? How often do we decide, 
I'll just go back to my former way of living and I'll kind of stay in the closet as God's chosen people. That way I don't have to deal with the hostility of my neighbors. They scare me. Well, uh, Joshua and Caleb, who were the two spies who said, we can do this, say in verse 8, if the Lord delights in us, he'll bring us into this land, he'll give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord. Don't fear the people of the land. Watch this. They are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said, stone these two guys. And the glory of the Lord showed up. Hmm? It is a powerful reminder that in the midst of chaos, there is a remnant of the faithful. And God glories in that remnant as much as he would an entire nation. Hmm. And so Numbers chapter 14 becomes the expression of fear and failure and doubt in the glory and the power of God. God decides he's going to kill them all. And Moses prays for them, starting in verse uh, 13 down to verse 19. And the Lord responds in verse 20, says, I have pardoned them according to what you said, Moses. But truly as I live, as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who've seen my glory, my signs I did in Egypt uh, and in the wilderness, and have put me to test all these times, and have not obeyed my voice, none of them will see the land that I swore. And at Numbers 14, the direction of God's people is changed, and now they wander around. The rest of the book of Numbers is them wandering around because God's going to take all of their lives. And nobody gets to go into that land who stood up that day and said, let's go back to Egypt. Wasn't it great to be a slave? Um, the book of Deuteronomy then is um, a constitutional review, if you will. Following numbers, the book of Deuteronomy becomes, the word Deuteronomy means second law, and it is the re-giving of the instructions of God to the children of those rebellious people in Numbers 14. When, when God said, none of you are going in, I'm taking your kids in. Well, before they go in, they are re-given the Constitution. Here's how you're going to live. This is how you're going to behave. This is what your life's going to be like. I'm going to give you a second chance. And they do. Now, that was a sweeping cover of the book of Deuteronomy, don't you think? I'm actually going to come back and read a couple sections in a minute. Because there are a couple warnings to that group of children that define their behavior once they get to the land that they need to hold on to. And so the book of Deuteronomy becomes God reviewing and rehearsing and making sure that the next generation is prepared to bring his glory to the earth by being the people they're supposed to be. They rise up. And Deuteronomy ends with the death of their leader, Moses. 
and the succession plan of the Lord to a fellow named Joshua, who will then lead the people into the promised land. And the people who have a king and have a constitution are about to have a country. The book of Joshua is the recounting of all the amazing things that God did to bring those people into the land. And I'd like you to go to the end of the book of Joshua, if you would, chapter 24, page 198. <clears throat> you get to the end of the book of Joshua, um, starting in verse 1 of chapter 24, there is a review. They're now in the land. They now possess the land. This is now home. <coughs> Excuse me, this is now home. God's promises are no longer promises, they're realities. They experience them every single day. And so Joshua gathers all the tribes, and he summons all the elders and the heads and the judges and the officers, and they present themselves before God. He then rehearses their history that brought them to this place. All the way back to Genesis, covers Exodus, covers Numbers, brings them all the way back to this place. And in verse 14, as he's speaking to them, he says this, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers, sir, beyond the river, and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served uh, or the gods of the Amorites in the land you dwell. But as for me and my house, anybody have this on their house wall? As for me and my house, what will we do? We will serve the Lord. Thank you very much. Almost seems like Joshua's not convinced the people are still quite there, is he? If we use street language, Joshua just put them on blast. He just stepped right in their face and goes, Uh, Well, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm serving the Lord with my life. Do you want to go do those other silly gods? You go ahead and do it. The people answered, verse 16, Far be it from us that we should forsake our Lord to serve other gods. It is the Lord our God who brought us our fathers out of Egypt. He just reviewed that. Out of the house of slavery. He did the signs in our sight. He preserved us in the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. The Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Joshua says, I don't think you can do it. He's kind of a killjoy, man. I mean, he's like, he, they, they make this big pronouncement. He goes, nah, you can't do it. He's holy. He's jealous. He's not going to forgive you. <clears throat> if you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, Excuse me, he will turn and do you harm. And the people said, no, we will serve the Lord. He goes, okay, I'm going to turn a rock upside down and stand it up. This is going to be a witness that you said this this day. Anytime anybody comes and sees this memorial, they'll go, why is that rock turned up? And they go, because that's when the people said they're going to serve God. And they're going to go, well, why aren't they serving God? And I don't know, they lied. I don't know. Maybe you have some of those memorials in your life. In fact, I would suggest to you one of the most powerful memorials we have today is baptism that we come back to almost like a rock stood up 
where we said, I will serve the Lord, and we make a pronouncement, right, publicly? And it's why uh, I'm off in the weeds now, and I don't have time to be, but I'm going to do it anyhow, which is not unusual. And uh, um, parents, as your children make that journey to the place of their baptisms, do something to confirm that in their hearts. Help that be a solid moment in their lives so that they can go back to the rock and go, yeah, I made that commitment. By the end of Joshua, then, you now have a people with a leader, God, their king, a constitution, the Ten Commandments, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Deuteronomy, and the land. Guess what you have? You have a nation. And that nation has a purpose. And that purpose is to display the glory of God for all the peoples on earth. The book of Judges becomes the settling of the land. The land's conquered in the book of Joshua. It is settled in the book of Judges. The book of Judges is horrifying. It is horrifying because the bravado of Joshua 24 is replaced with the last verse of the book of Judges, which says this, there was no king in Israel. Yes, there was. There just wasn't an earthly one. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Uh Uh-oh. We will follow God, Joshua 24. We'll do whatever we want, Judges 21. The Lord gives them the land and helps them conquer. They decide to civilize it the way they want, which was to accommodate those who are around them and their behavior. I won't go through some of the gross things that happened toward the end of the book of Joshua, but I preached not long ago those chapters, which were some of the most R-rated, MA-rated chapters in the whole Bible, with people being chopped up and rape and all kinds of evil going on. And they became like the nations they were supposed to put the display of the glory of God on. Now, I'm running a little late, so I'm not going to be able to read to you. This was warned to them in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 8, verses 11 to 20. Chapter 12, verses 29 to 32. When you get in the land and you have nice houses and your stomachs are full and you have two chariots in your garage and four donkeys on your hillside, don't forget how you got there. And the warning of the book of Deuteronomy, again, rings so true for us today. Do we not understand that prosperity could cause us to forget our God? Do we not forget that the things we own could take the place of the one who actually owns us? Could we not come to the place where we cherish the gifts that we are given more than the giver who gives them to us? That's what happened in the book of Judges. The standards for success and power and passion were set by the nations, not the Constitution. Israel fails. Um, We're going to cover the rest of this Old Testament history in the weeks to come. I'm almost done. The book of Ruth. The book of Ruth sits in the middle of this evil book of Judges. 
as a reminder of the beauty of faithfulness in the midst of chaos. As Boaz, in the midst of all of this insanity, honors God every step of the way, brings beauty to his new wife, Ruth, and puts on display the greatness of God through his love of a woman. And all of us men read the book of Ruth and go, oh no, we do not measure up men. And women walk around looking for Boaz. And they hunt for Boaz. Or they're already married. And they look across the table and go, that's no Boaz. It is an amazing story of faithfulness in the midst of chaos. Now, I want to put a cap on this because God has not left us without hope. That was the nation to the nations. And when they failed, guess what God did? He prophesied that he would send the Messiah of that nation, the King of Kings, to lead them on earth so they would not fail again. And the Lord Jesus Christ comes, and we have to go to the Gospel of Luke and look at the Christmas story, page 857. Come on, 857, here we go. I know, history's exciting, isn't it? So, you all know the story. Angels show up to shepherds. When they show up to the shepherds, here's what they say to them. The same thing angels always say when they show up. Fear not. Which every one of us would say, but you're scary. Angels are scary. Anyhow, fear not. um, For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Flip the page, I have to, verse 29, same chapter. Uh, And Simeon, the Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. My eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles for the glory of, to your people Israel. Do you see the nations are still in focus when the Savior is brought into this earth? God has never wavered from his mission to rescue the nations all the way back to Genesis 11. Those nations have been the focal point of the whole Israel thing, and God now sends his Son as Messiah for all the world. Let's explain it theologically. Romans chapter 15, if you would, page 896. Come on, John, you can do it, baby. Pray for the nursery workers. I always feel bad when I go long. You ready? Verse 8, watch this text, amazing. Paul says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. There's Abraham again. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again it said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with this people. And again, 
Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even as he who raises the rule to the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles will have hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy, peace, believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may have hope. That's a powerful passage. And he keeps going back to the Old Testament and says, and again, and again, and again, and again, God renewed and revised and stated over and over, I love the nations. I love those Gentiles. I sent my son for them. And so what Israel has failed to do, Jesus is completing right now. And it takes me to my final point in this, and that's the glory of God consummated. And we look ahead to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. I do not have time to read it, I apologize. But the nation's voices in chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, are joined together. And you know what happens in the book of Revelation, chapter 7? The glory of Genesis 11 is put back together. The voices that have been scattered because of rebellion are reunited in the person of Christ. And with one voice, all the tribes, tongues, and nations of the world come together and say, how great is our God. And then the Creator's voice in in, uh, Revelation chapter 21, where the Creator looks down on it all and says, just so you know, there's a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to wipe away every tear. I have not forgotten you. And so I want to suggest to you, as we've looked at this idea of the glory of God through the nations of this earth, that in all these things, God has not forgotten the individuals that make them up. And there will be a day, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you remember the rest of the verse? To the glory of God the Father. He created in glory. He recreates in glory. And the whole world will be consummated in his glory. And so he rose a nation to put himself on display so that people could see there is a king. He has a constitution. They are truly a nation. They have a land. And even though they failed, the king of kings came to rescue. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? To him be the praise and glory. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and for this amazing summary of your hand through history. It is indeed your story. We bow before you knowing that you're magnificent above all things. We pray, Father, that we would have the courage that the Israelites did not have, that we would not fear our culture and we would stand to your praise and glory, that we would take the darts of the enemy the ridicule, the punishments, the persecutions, because your name is great and we need to make it so. Thank you for this opportunity to share it this morning. You've been most gracious. Bless these dear people who have heard in Christ's name, amen.